Good evening, Evie Free. Good evening. How are you guys? There's like, it, it sounds like there's two of us in this house. Uh, well, I, I am uh, so glad to be with you. If my mind uh, or my speech feels a little bit like it's in several directions, I am, I'm battling a little jet lag right now. I was in Israel last week. It was my first time to what they call the Holy Land. It's about, a, I think, a 12-hour uh, difference from there to California. So I, I'm still battling that. Uh, but it was, it was so interesting to actually be in the land that you read about so often. I mean, you open the text and from beginning to end, you're reading about all of these spaces in northern Israel and in southern Israel and the division of the kingdoms and the temple and all these spaces that Jesus visits. And whenever you read it in the text and you teach about it, it's a wonderful thing. But when you actually go there, it's such a unique experience. To, to walk the grounds that Jesus walked, to go up to the western wall and to see the temple. It, it, it's a pretty amazing thing. And oftentimes, it can make the stories that we've been reading about and studying pop just a little bit more. It becomes less of an imaginary world and you actually, you feel the soil. You feel the wall. And, and so it was interesting. I, I was in Jerusalem. We were in Jerusalem for a couple of days. And I tell you what, that city is hopping. There are so many people in Jerusalem, and they're from all kinds of walks of life. You have uh, folks that adhere to Judaism. You have folks that uh, adhere to Islam. You have folks that are completely secular and uninterested. They're just doing business in and around the area. And as we walked around old Jerusalem, I, I remember the stories that I've been reading in the text. And I think, man, this just makes so much more sense. And, and then a few days later, we went up into uh, northern Israel by the Sea of Galilee. And I tell you what, if you, if you ever get to go to Israel, it's my favorite place. It's absolutely beautiful in the Sea of Galilee. And it's the place that's actually been the least developed, which was so interesting for me, but it also made a lot of sense. You see, when we read the biblical text, we find that Jerusalem is the center of business. Jerusalem is the center of politics. It, it's the center where all the religious elites would gather. If you're going to be a rabbi and you want to make a name for yourself, you want to be in Jerusalem. You want to be teaching there. You wanted to be in the temple. If you were out on the outskirts in the very south of Israel or in the north of Israel, you oftentimes were forgotten about. In fact, Jerusalem had a reputation for being passionate about the Torah for being passionate about the text. And when you move into northern Israel, uh, by Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee, their reputation was exactly the opposite. They were people that were interested in business and agriculture and fishing and the economy, but they had very little interest in Torah. In fact, a, a rabbi around the same time as Jesus, uh, he leaves Jerusalem on mission. And his mission is to go into Nazareth, to go into, into Galilee, and to plant a school, a school in which they would study Torah. You see, when you're in Jerusalem, there were all kinds of schools all over the place that were deeply prestigious when studying the text. But when you made it to Galilee, the schools were non-existent. And so this rabbi goes up there, and he tries for about 10 years to establish a school in which the Galileans will learn to love Torah, and he completely fails. And in fact, after the 10 years, he abandons his mission, he shakes the dust off his feet, and he curses Galilee, saying, you don't love God, and you don't love Torah. Torah. 
Uh, That's the reputation of Galilee. But what's interesting, when we read about Jesus, we find that Galilee was the hub of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus begins to get his start, this place that was very, not anti-Torah, but just kind of disinterested in Torah, or indifferent in Torah. This became a space in which Jesus began to teach. And when Jesus began to teach in Galilee, he began to capture the imaginations of all the folks around him. He began to perform all kinds of miracles from helping the lame to walk, helping the blind to see, uh, exercising demons from folks. And so it became this hotbed of activity and, and the reputation and the name of Jesus begins to spread. And people are asking the question, well, why is he in Galilee? Why is he in Nazareth? And in fact, the text one time speaks, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so I, I remember on this trip being down by the Sea of Galilee and just recently they were having a huge drought and uh, the Sea of Galilee had dropped several feet and they, they found the tip of a boat in the water and so they called the archaeologists and the excavationists and, and they dig this boat out of the water and it's now in this museum and it's probably a boat that is the closest to first century boats they have. And as I'm sitting there, I'm remembering this story about Jesus, that oftentimes when Jesus wasn't teaching in a synagogue in Galilee, he was down by the sea teaching. Mark 4 paints this amazing picture of the teachings of Jesus. You see, oftentimes when Jesus would teach by the Sea of Galilee, he would do so first thing in the morning. It's when the sun is first coming up that people are going out to buy and sell and to trade goods. Fishermen are coming in from fishing or about to go out from fishing. It was the time when if you wanted to capture an audience, it was your absolute best time. And in this area, Jesus is beginning to develop a reputation as a teacher. And so early in the morning on this day, he goes and he stands by the Sea of Galilee. And he begins to talk about this thing that everyone all over Israel was talking about and waiting for. And it's called the kingdom of God. So Jesus, as people are buying and selling goods and fishermen are pulling in their boats, he says, man, what what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a farmer that grabs seed and, and he throws it on his land and some of the seed falls on the path and some falls among rocks and some falls among thorns and some falls among soil. The seed that falls on the path, Satan comes and he scoops it up and the seed doesn't even have time to grow. For the seed that falls among the rocks, it it blooms quickly, but because the rocks, it doesn't have any roots, and so it withers up and it dries out. For the seed that falls among the thorns, it begins to grow, but the worries of life and the deceit of wealth, the thorns actually suffocate it. But there's a small percentage of the seed that finds good soil. And when this seed finds good soil, it produces fruit. Sometimes 30, 60, and 100 times the fold. People in Galilee, their, their imagination is captured by this parable. And so they, they begin to gather around Jesus because they want to hear more. And so Jesus continues. He says, in what other way can I speak about the kingdom of God? It's like a farmer who goes out during the day. And he throws seed all over his field and then he goes to sleep. 
And whether or not he feels energetic the next day or lazy, whether he gets up or he sleeps in, this seed begins to grow. And it's a mystery. And when the seed comes full bloom, the farmer knows not how it grows, but it grows. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And as Jesus continues to teach about this, the crowd around Jesus grows larger. He says, he says one last time, he says, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's, it's like the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all of the seeds. But when planted properly, and given time, the mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, grows into one of the largest of the plants in the garden, giving shade and provision and shelter to humans and animals alike. And, and the way that Jesus is teaching, people begin to think, man, he's teaching something that's different. He's teaching in a way that we're not used to rabbis teaching. They phrase it like this. He's teaching as one who has authority. And his authority, these parables that he's using, they're capturing our imagination. And so on this day in Galilee, the crowd gets so big and wants to hear more from Jesus that Jesus gets in a boat and he just kind of pushes away from the shore. He pushes away from the shore because he wants to make sure that everybody can see him. And not only that, the hills of Galilee stretch far into the air. And so as he would project his voice against the water, it would act as a natural amplifier. The text says that the crowd grows to be so large that he sits in that boat teaching all day. And because the boats would come in with the front of the boat facing out towards the sea and the back of the boat towards the beginning, Jesus is sitting in the stern teaching. About halfway through Mark, it says, and finally evening came. It was time for folks to go home. And if you've ever pulled a really, really long day at work, sometimes you don't even want to drive home. You just want to put your head down and you want to sleep. This is the picture that Mark begins to paint, is that Jesus has been teaching all day. The sun has gone down and the stars are coming out. And Jesus, in the stern of this boat, just a few feet from the shore, he puts his head down on a pillow to sleep. And then he just barely opens his eyes. And he, and he gazes across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And if you're in the boat looking at the other side, what you would have seen was unlike anything that you would see in Israel. It was a society and a civilization that was completely pagan. Large marble buildings and structures and cities were built on the hills. From this Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, looking across the ocean, you could see the lights and the torches lighting up this city that was on the hill. So Jesus sits in the boat looking across. We actually have a map of it that we want to pull up for you. Uh, the map shows that the city isn't that far. The, the city is about seven miles from where Jesus is in Galilee. It's those two lines at the very top of the map. But the text says that it's the, it's the other side of the sea. It's the opposite side. And, and, and when they talk about the other side, when they talk about the opposite side, they aren't talking about just geographic. They are saying that everything on the other side of the sea is completely different. In fact, when you would journey across the sea, you found an entire pantheon of gods. But when you were on the Jewish side of the sea, you worshipped only one god. 
When you journeyed to the other side of the sea, the kind of worship they would have in the temples was crude and it was perverted and it, and it was sexual beyond anything that you could possibly dream or imagine today. But whenever you were on the Jewish side, worship was orderly and it was modest. When you would journey to the other side, they lived their lives in excess and in gluttony. But the Jewish scriptures always encourage the Jewish people to party hard, but to do it in moderation. In fact, uh, uh, Jewish rabbis, when they would talk about these two lands, they would say this. They would say, the land of Israel is the land of the 12, meaning it's the promised land. It's the land of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the land across the sea, that's the land of the seven. When you go to the book of Joshua, and Joshua is expelling the peoples from the promised land. Joshua talks about expelling seven nations of people. As rabbis would read that text, they began to imagine that across the, across the sea where there was pagan worship, where they lived their lives in excess, when they worshiped in ways that were completely perverted, that was the fruit of those seven nations that were expelled from the promised land. In fact, even though it was only seven miles apart, rabbis would call it a far and distant country. At one point, Jesus will tell a story about a prodigal son who wants his father dead so he can have his inheritance immediately. And when Jesus tells this story, he says, the father concedes. He gives the son his inheritance and the son goes to a far away and distant country to lose his inheritance and to live his life in excess and ultimately to live among the pigs. Jesus tells this story from the Sea of Galilee, referencing the land of the Gentiles just across the way. Uh, the place was so vile that Jewish people wouldn't dare even step foot on the soil. If they were even to go over there, they would be shamed. They would be considered unclean. And if you are a prestigious rabbi with disciples that wanted to be just like you, that's the last place in the world you would take them. If you left Galilee, the place that you would take them was to Jerusalem, the capital the center of politics and the economy and religion. But, but here's Jesus laying in the stern of this boat, about to go to sleep, looking out across and seeing these marble buildings lit up by lights and torches. And this boat in its chambers, it's echoing the parables that he's just told about seed being scattered. And how it doesn't grow immediately, but just one seed can grow into the largest of the trees. So as the disciples are gathering the ropes and about to paddle back in, Jesus says five of the most scandalous words a rabbi could have said. He looks at his disciples and he says, let's go to the other side. Now, Wait, Jesus, are you talking about the other side of the sea? Yeah, the, those, those marble buildings, that city on a hill with those lights, we need to go to the other side. The disciples respond, Rabbi, you're very tired. 
You must not be thinking straight. Let's get you back to the house, get a good night's sleep, and then maybe in the morning you'll think differently. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is expanding. Seed needs to be scattered. We, we need to go to the other side. The disciples respond, Jesus, that's the last place we could go. If we're going to go anywhere, let's go to Jerusalem. You're famous. People want to hear your teachings. They want to see what you can do. We can't go to the other side. And Jesus says, no, that's exactly where we're going. We're going to the other side. It's evening and it's dark outside. And if you're disciples, you want to be just like your rabbi. So the text says that the disciples hop in the boat and they leave Jesus just as he was laying in the stern, sleeping, and they begin to paddle across the sea with several other boats. It would have been, I don't know if you remember being young and walking through your neighborhood late at night when you shouldn't have been out, but this is an eerie scene for the disciples. They're paddling out into these deep, dark waters, and when you, were, when you were Jewish, deep, dark waters were the last place that you wanted to be. You wanted your feet on land. You were shepherds, and you were farmers, and you were carpenters. In fact, when you read the text all throughout the Old Testament, deep, dark waters are synonymous with chaos. They're synonymous with forces that are anti-God. Genesis talks about these waters and how a, a deep darkness was over the surface of the deep and yet Yahweh speaks and begins creation. When the Psalms talk about the deep waters, it talks about a giant sea monster named Leviathan that lives in the deep. When Revelation talks about the new creation, about the new city of God, it says, and in this city there will be no sea. But here are the disciples with their rabbi journeying into the chaos, journeying into a space that they feared most. And as they push out, and as they begin to be just about in the middle of the sea, their worst nightmare comes true. It says a furious squall falls over the boat. The waves begin to crash over the side and begin to crush the boat. Dark clouds have rolled in and they can hear the clasp of thunder and they can see the lightning. Uh, the disciples aren't even able to journey or to push the boat in the proper direction. The storm is so severe. In fact, not only is this water darkness and not only is the water chaos, they're going into a land in which the god Baal is worshipped. And Baal was considered the god of thunder. And so here they are in the middle of a place they feel like they have no business being and they know that only Yahweh can combat these kind of forces and they don't know that their rabbi is up to the task. And so after hours and hours of trying to keep the boat afloat, after hours of trying to keep the boat going in the same direction, the disciples look to the back of the boat and they see the most stunning scene. They see Jesus fast asleep in the stern. And the disciples are furious. 
Jesus has led them into the middle of this storm and now it appears as if Jesus has completely abandoned them. No pun intended, Jesus has fallen asleep at the wheel. It looks as if he's not concerned at all. In fact, the disciples run back and they ask a question that I imagine all of us have asked at some point in time. It says, teacher, don't you care that we are about to drown? Can't you see that we're going under? Are you going to have any mercy or any sympathy or any compassion for our situation? Jesus, what have you done? Jesus, at the sound of their voices, he opens his eyes. And he sees the, the lightning in the sky and he hears the sound of thunder. His clothes drenched from the waves of the Sea of Galilee. And he looks at his disciples and he says, do you really have that little faith? Think about all the things you've already seen me do. I've helped the lame to walk. I've opened the eyes of the blind. I've cast out demons and still here in this moment you have so little faith. The disciples say, yup. Jesus stands up from the stern and he walks to the front of the boat in this confrontation of this Jewish rabbi with the deep dark waters and the God of thunder Baal and with utter command and with utter authority Jesus simply says storm be quiet be still And the text says that as soon as Jesus says this, the storm subsides, the lightning stops, and the clouds roll back. And his disciples are shocked. The disciples actually, who is this? Even the wind and the waves and the storm and even nature obeys his voice. Not only is he one that teaches with authority, but he has authority. In fact, in this moment, Jesus exercises the kind of authority that was only given to Yahweh. So as we we read this passage, I can't help but to feel like the disciples. That in my life, there have been all kinds of storms in my family. There have been all kinds of storms in my finances. There have been storms with my friends and at my school. And every time there's a storm, I run to Jesus and I ask the question, do you even care? Jesus, I feel as if you've led me to this point and now it feels like you've abandoned me. It feels like you're asleep at the wheel. Jesus, do you see what's going on? If you're like me, you may have had the same kind of situation. A storm in your marriage. A storm with your kids. A storm with your school. A storm in the place that you work. And if you're like me, you ask that same kind of question, Jesus, do you even care? I'm scared. 
and I'm afraid and you look as if you're nowhere to be found. Tonight, if you're like me, and tonight, if you're asking that question, these are the words that Jesus says to the storms in our life. Quiet. Be still. For the storm in our marriage, Jesus says, quiet. Storm. Be still. For the storm with our kids, Jesus speaks to it and says, storm, be quiet. Storm, be still. What we find in the text is that Jesus is constantly and relentlessly calling his people to deep courage, to fearless faith, knowing that when it looks like God isn't working, God is always at work. When it looks like God isn't moving, God is always moving. Jesus is constantly saying, Selah, be quiet and be still. As believers, this gives us great confidence. But for some of us, we're here because we're celebrating that a storm has ended. And if you've ever been on the other side of the storm, it's probably the best place to be. (laughs) Some of you are here this evening because you're in the middle of a storm. And you need to remember that Jesus has not forgotten about you. That Jesus has not abandoned you. That Jesus has not fallen asleep at the wheel, but that in the middle of your storm, Jesus is present. And for some of you in here, you're here because you're in the middle of the storm, but you don't know who Jesus is. You're at your ropes end. You're thinking, I will try anything. I will go anywhere, including a local church, to find rest from the storm. What we find in the text is that Jesus is deeply concerned. Jesus deeply cares for us. And so Jesus is the place that we can constantly and consistently run to. First Peter says this. He says, cast every single one of your anxieties not just just cast the small ones not just cast the medium sized ones not just cast the big ones the text says cast every single one of your desires your anxieties on him why because he cares for you tonight if you're asking the question Jesus do you even care I'm afraid fearful. I'm scared of the storm that's surrounding me. Jesus is telling us tonight, yes, I see the storm. I'm in the stern of the boat with you. I'm in the middle of the storm with you. Yes, I care. You can cast every single one of your anxieties on me. Every anxiety of family, of job, of school, of marriage, of relationships, 
of friends, of kids, of parents, whatever the anxiety is, we come to a local church to remember that Jesus is in the storm with us. And so he says, don't be afraid. But take courage. And so tonight, we just want to spend a few moments responding. Some of you are in the middle of a storm and you need to remember that Jesus is in the storm with you. Some of you are in the middle of a storm and it feels like Jesus doesn't care. And you're asking the question, Jesus, do you even care? And Jesus' response is, yes. And not only do I care, I'm the one that can silence the storm. I'm the one that can make the storm be still. So before we hop back into worship, can we pray together? Father, tonight we remember your son. Your son that with his 12 disciples in the midst of a raging storm, as waves are crashing over the boat and taking it under, your disciples ask the same question we ask. Do you even care? So tonight, Jesus, we are, we're asking that you would come and you'd speak to us. And by the power of your spirit, you'd speak into the chambers of our soul, yes. Storm, be quiet. Be still. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're in here right now and you feel like you're in the middle of a storm, we're not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I do want to pray for you. If you feel like you're in the middle of a storm right now with every head bowed, every eye closed, can you just raise your hand? If you need to know that Jesus is with you, for those of you on the left side, I see you. For you folks here in the middle, I see you. For you guys on the right, I see you. You can put your hands down. If you raised your hand, you got to know Jesus is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. Whatever the storm is, tonight he's saying to your storm, storm, be quiet. Storm, be still. You belong to me. So Jesus, I lift up these folks. Would you come and comfort them? Come and speak to the chambers of their soul that you're present with them in the middle of the storm. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.